Amen. Good to see you guys today. Welcome to church. Man, what a great day to be together. Awesome. Good to see you guys. Uh, I, was just, I shared this with first service and I, I wanted to share it again here today. I was in worship um, during first service. I really felt the Lord speak two words to me. The words main event. Uh, main event. You know, I think oftentimes we, we think that church, you know, I'll go to church on a Sunday, get into worship, hear some, not hear a message, eat some donuts, sing some songs and then go on about my business. But actually, this is the main event. This time of us coming together in the presence of God. We are uh, the church, right? We are the temples of the Holy Spirit and God's presence is here to heal, to restore, to, uh, to convict of sin so that you can walk in righteousness. Like there are so many amazing things that happen right here in the atmosphere. And this is the main event. Uh, most, some, some of us, maybe not many, but a few of us might've watched some college football games yesterday. I don't know, some of us. Maybe, may or, may, may or may not have watched the Ducks beat UCLA. Uh, I did. And uh, that looked, yes, that's a great thing to celebrate too. Um, but that wasn't the main event. Watching whoever football team that's going on today in the NFL, that's not the main event. This is the main event. This is where God is moving and doing incredible things. So I'm so excited to be here with you guys at the main event. We're going to jump right into Sunday School. We've been in this series talking about what we believe, why we believe it, and how to live it out faithfully as followers of Christ. And uh, we're just talking about understanding the beautiful basics, the, the timely essentials of our faith, and really anchoring ourselves to the truth of what the Christian faith is. There are a lot of people these days that, that actually have a problem with the Christian faith or with the church or with Christ, but it's oftentimes uh, a reaction against the caricature or a reaction for uh, reasons that are not connected to what the Christian faith really is, who Christ really is, what he did. And oftentimes as believers, we don't even know how to explain why we believe what we believe, uh, because we don't really know what we believe. And so that's why we're really going through this in this series. And in 1 Peter 3.15, one of Jesus' disciples penned these words thousands of years ago, but they're very appropriate for us today. He said, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. When somebody says to you, why do you have hope in a pandemic world? Why do you have hope in a politically divisive world? Why do you have hope in a world in which there is great sorrow and sadness and great tragedy and wars and natural disasters? Why do you have hope? How could you be so uh, audacious as to feel like there's something better coming or there's a better, uh, a better reality even now and as a believer, our job is not to necessarily be perfect in our life because we're not, right? We don't always live up to the exact example or standard of Christ, so that is our goal, but we don't, do we? Anybody else? You're leaving me hanging up here. Uh, we don't always have all the right answers. Have you ever had a tough question come at you that you didn't have the answer to? I was in Bible college uh, a long time ago, and uh, we were doing this kind of mock debate where one of my buddies um, was the Christian and I got to be the atheist which was like delightful to me. I was the devil's advocate, literally. And I was in that moment and I was asking him tough questions. And he, this was his response. He said, Jesus loves me, shut up. <laughs> Jesus loves me, shut up. If that's the level of your answer of the hope that is within you, it's time to upgrade. Come on, somebody, supersize. <laughs> it's time to upgrade your answer. That doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. There are tough questions that get asked, uh, you know, you get stumped and it's not your capacity to be intellectually in touch with the divine uh, to answer everybody's tough questions, but we are to be able to explain, this is why I have hope. 
And so in this series, we're looking into this. Why do we have hope? We've talked about the fact that God doesn't ignore our plight, but he, he speaks through the, the word. He spoke through his prophets and he spoke through Jesus. But not only did he speak to us in human history, he acted in human history by sending Jesus, coming down and actually invading this mess and doing something about it. That he acted in the way uh, of, of, through the cross, that he died for our sins, both as an example for us how we live, but also as our sin bearer to actually pay the price for our sins. And so today we're going to move on from looking at what God has done and we're going to talk about how we can respond and what it means to follow Jesus. And as we start talking about how to respond, it begins with counting the cost. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus is practicing hyperbole here because he doesn't actually want you to hate people, okay? What we, what we need to hear here is what he's saying. He's saying there is something about following me that has to surpass everything else. Come on. You can't be saying, well, it's Jesus plus. No, no, no. If you're following Jesus, it's literally to the extent of I've denied everything else. I'm going all in with him. He says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then he tells two examples. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Now, I don't really build towers. I don't know about you, but in our context, we would buy a lot and build a house. Anybody ever gone through this process? Or maybe a remodel of an existing house. We've just gone through a remodel. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. In other words, you didn't really count the cost. You didn't really think it through. You weren't very wise. You decided to do something. You started this project. You didn't really have what it took to get it done. Why would you start it in the first place? He gives another example. He says, or suppose... A king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Uh, in other words, how big a boy are you, right? Do I have, uh, do I have the, uh, the, the, the fortitude, the strength to take this other guy down? He says, if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, so Jesus says, like that tower, like this king, who's going to go to war. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Bottom line, Jesus is saying two words here, all in. Are you all in? Are you counting the cost? Do you understand that to follow me means this is going to cost you something? And be clear, it's not just going to cost you something. It's going to cost you everything. I think what's interesting is in our day and age, we have a crossless version of Christianity and we have a measured version of Christianity, which says that you can follow Jesus in some aspects, some expressions, but others you can retain to your own, uh, your own direction or you, can, or you can live a different way. You can take Jesus and take the parts you like of Jesus and you can take the parts you like of the Bible, but the things that make you feel uncomfortable, you can just get rid of those and replace them with something that maybe is a little bit more from like pop psychology of today or the moral relativism that we have today. And Jesus actually makes this very clear. He says, wait a second, you need to stop and you need to think about whether you actually want to follow me. Because why would you start something that you're not going to complete? Why would you start building a house only to be mocked and ridiculed? Throughout the scriptures, Jesus is very clear. He's actually really bad at being a pastor. I mean, as a pastor, I'll just, I mean, I just want to critique his pastoring. 
he really shrinks his church quite a lot. Like this rich young ruler comes in. Guy's got his Yeezys, right? He comes in, he rolls in, he's like, Jesus, I want to follow you. Boom. And, and, you know, Jesus could say, that's awesome. Well, we've got a building project going on. I mean, we've got, you get involved with kids ministry. I mean, you could serve in youth. We're going to get you to next track. And Jesus is like, sweet. You want to follow me? Great. All you got to do is give up everything. And it says he departed sorrowfully. And so I think, Jesus, you're not a very good pastor. Because why don't you let this guy journey with us? Just come and journey with us, right? These are the things we say as American Christians and American pastors. Just come on a journey with us. You have questions? We've got answers. We have donuts. You can come to Next Track. And we'll feed, we'll feed you little morsels so that you feel comfortable. Now you go, oh no, Pastor Jake's eroding the foundation of our church and how we do things. I absolutely am. I'm in a great mood today. I want to just play fast and loose with everything we do. No, what I want to do is get to the root of this, is Jesus, he knows what this man's idol is. He knows that the thing that this guy thinks is really his salvation is actually his damnation. This thing that this guy thinks is what gives him hope and life and fulfillment and even what he's going to use to help Jesus. He'll give him some of his wealth, but Jesus says, wait, until you're willing to give all, you can't have any. And he draws a very clear line in the sand and he says, I'm going to go right to the place of your idolatry and I want, to, I want to take that away from you. I want to divest that from you so that you can actually get what I have for you. You see, we have to get to this point where we understand we don't have anything to offer to him. Yeah. It's kind of like a negotiation with my children. Sometimes my kids try to negotiate with Bethany and I. And I have to explain to them very nicely, everything you would be negotiating with me for, I gave it to you. I can take it away. You're negotiating, I'll clean my room if. No, you'll clean your room now. I will, I will obey. I will, I will turn off the TV when I'm done with my show. You will turn off the TV because I bought the TV. I pay for the internet. I pay for Netflix and I can make it all disappear. I don't, they don't, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing they bring to the table as far as economically. I provided it all. When we come to God and we say, Lord, I'm going to bring you some of my life, he just says, that's okay. Go ahead and keep it. How's it working for you? He says, no, no, no. When you come to me, you bring me all of your life and I'll give you all of mine. Jesus gives us a transaction. It's a deal. He puts it on the table. A cross for a cross. A cross for a cross. And though the deal is so weighted heavily in our favor, that is the deal that he presents for us. He says, you've got to count the cost. You've got to understand when you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. But that's not where the story ends, and we'll go on from here. But let's be clear, that's what he's saying. You ever go to the grocery store and you count the cost, right? And usually it's higher than you want to pay. Bethany and I always try to guess, you know, we go get all our groceries on the conveyor belt and we're like, what's it going to cost? And we play a little game and, uh, and try to guess. I remember one time we really were counting the cost with our kids. Like Bethany and I got married when we were 22, and, uh, and we waited until, I think I was close to 27 or maybe turning 27 in a month before we had Evie. So we waited about four years. It was wonderful four years of our life. It was great because uh, we were counting the cost. But after we had our beautiful girl, Evie, who's sitting right here, she was born. She's just the most beautiful little baby, cherubic, red, rosy cheeks. She didn't sleep at night, but we forgave her for that. Uh, just a beautiful little girl. We were at the grocery store. And I began to look at the prices of things like the price of pears and the price of steak and the price of, you know, mushrooms, the price per pound, right? And I, I started to figure out what her price per pound was because 
Bethany and I, we didn't, uh, we, we just try to fade, you know, the, whatever the majority uh, move is, we just fade it. So what we did is we were like, we're going to go to a birth center. We're going to use a midwife because we believe in witchcraft. And so <laughs> we decided to go that route. Some of you are like, this is a weird church. Hey, it is. So we went to the midwife. We, we had to pay for it out of pocket and it was expensive. And so I began to figure out Evie's per pound price. And I think I found something about 1300 per pound was the price. <laughs> We were counting the cost, and it was 100% worth it, 100% worth it. But as we begin to follow Jesus, we need to count the cost. And counting the cost, I want to give us three aspects of this, three aspects of counting the cost, three things to consider as we look at, am I going to respond to the offer of salvation? Am I going to take Jesus up on his offer of a cross for a cross? And what does that look like? How do I do this? So there's three things today I want to talk about. Number one, the renunciation of sin. Number two, the renunciation of self, and number three, the public acknowledgement of Christ. Number one, the renunciation of sin. It's kind of a fun word, renunciation. Uh, it means this, the formal rejection of something, typically a belief, claim, or course of action. In other words, I renounce, I'm done. I, I, was, I was on this team and now I renounce it. I'm, I'm wearing a different jersey now. When we follow Jesus, we're called to actually leave the kingdom we were in, the kingdom of darkness, and receive his salvation and now walk in the light. We're called to renounce our old ways and do something that is really, really unpopular and not preached about a whole lot in 21st century America, which is actually stop sinning. What a novel idea that you would come to Jesus and that as a Christian, you would start to, as you grow in him, look more like him. But this is actually an aspect of what it means to be saved, is that there is this act of what's called repentance. John Stott says the word for this is repentance, and it is the first step in Christian conversion. There is no way around it. Repentance and faith belong together. We cannot follow Christ without forsaking sin. Now, Bethany and I were married uh, March 17th. I, used to, I misquoted it before, but I won't today. March 17th, uh, 14 years ago coming up, so that was in uh, 2007. So we've been married 14 years. And I remember that our wedding day, it was a great day. I was standing up there in a tuxedo, uh, looked like James Bond. People actually were saying that all day. It's like James Bond. And I was like, thank you. No, nobody said that. They're like, you look like the Pillsbury Doughboy in a costume. So I was up there standing there and Bethany comes down the aisle in her beautiful white wedding dress, just a radiant vision, just incredible. And it was such a moving time and it was beautiful. It was actually a holy moment. It was two young people committing their lives to each other, and you know what would have been strange about that day is if as Bethany came down the aisle and she stood there and I was looking in her eyes and she was looking in mine is that if I looked behind her and I said, well, who's that and who's that and who's that? And she said, oh, this is uh, Jimmy John and uh, this is uh, Jersey Mike and this is uh, Subway Sam, you know, and these are my exes. They're all sandwich shop owners. And um, <laughs> you're marrying me, but I'm, I'm going to bring them along because Jersey Mike, he's pretty funny and, you know, Subway Sam makes a good sandwich and Jimmy John, you know, it used to be cheaper than the other ones. Now they raise prices, but he's still here and we're going to bring him along. Wouldn't that be strange at a wedding day in this holy moment? Or what if she looked behind me and I was like, this is Susie Q and Katie Cat, And, you know, and, and it was like, we're trying to bring our past into this moment. It would be very awkward, not only for the people getting married, but for everybody observing that moment. You see, the beauty and the, the sanctity of marriage is the exclusivity and this idea that I'm saying yes to you, and in the process, I'm actually saying no to everyone else. 
And yet we even diminish our relationship with Christ beneath the institution of marriage when we say, I will come to Christ, but I'm going to bring my exes along with me. So as I stand there on our wedding day to give myself to Jesus and to give myself to his kingdom, that I'm going to bring all this, this baggage and this sin that he died to get rid of, why would I want to bring it into this relationship? And so repentance means you're going one direction you turn around and you go the other way. It means a complete changing of the heart and the mind. John Stott says it this way, repentance is a definite turning away from every thought, word, deed, and habit that we know to be wrong. It's not enough to feel pangs of remorse or to make some kind of apology to God. In essence, repentance is, neither, is a matter neither of what we feel nor of what we say. It is an inward change of mind and attitude towards sin, which leads to a change of behavior. There can be no compromise here. There may be sins in our lives which we do not think we could ever let go of, but we must be willing to let them go and ask God to deliver us from them. And as we go back to last week, we talked about the fact that when we are saved, when we give our life to Jesus and receive him as Lord and Savior, he gives us his Holy Spirit. Because what we find, and if you're sitting here as a Christian, you might be hearing my words and going, gosh, this doesn't really match to the reality of what I experienced. Because as believers, we fight, we wrestle, we struggle with sin. I mean, I can't tell you every day, I'm absolutely perfect until I wake up in the morning. And then it's all downhill from there. Is this anybody else's experience? And man, I wrestle with my lust and my anger and my rage. I wrestle with my frustration. I wrestle at my self-righteousness. Because I catch myself 20 times a day going, oh, if, if they were like me, then this wouldn't. And then I go, oh, that, I'm that guy in the prayer that Jesus talked about. I'm so self-righteous. I wrestle with sin. I struggle with sin. So, so does that mean I haven't repented? Does that mean I haven't turned from my sin? Does that mean Jesus hasn't saved me? No, it means that there are two natures warring and wrestling within me. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. They're warring within me. And that struggle actually shows that there's life now where before it was just there was no struggle because I was dead in my sin. I have this new nature that's come from Christ, but there's, it, 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 in response to that new nature is this, this movement that we, should, that we should live out and that I live out to say, you know what? I'm not going to justify my sins. I'm going to call them what they are. That is the old nature. That is the old man. It's wrong. And I want to pursue Jesus to look more like him and, and be more like him and love more like him on a daily basis. That is the call of a Christian. Did you know that Christianity would be very boring if all it was was you pray a prayer one time, now you have fire insurance, go live your life. It's not like that. It'd be like a marriage where you went to the wedding day and you, you had your reception and then you just went your separate ways. But the beauty of marriage is actually in the journey. It's not the destination, it's the journey. In the same way, Christian life is not, the beauty of it isn't that someday we get to be in heaven. That, that is beautiful. That's something we look forward to, absolutely, the new heavens and the new earth. But there's also something about this journey of living with God, becoming more like God, and, and repenting from our sins and walking with Jesus. And so it starts with the renunciation of sin, that formal rejection. And I think if I could put a nice shiny bow on this, I would say the, 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 the area that this most... Uh, is seen in, is in making sure that we do not make excuses or justify our sin, but rather call it what it is and give it to the cross on a daily basis. In other words, you're going to struggle with sin. Why? Because you're a human being, right? You have a sin nature and you're being, you were saved by Jesus, you're being saved and you will be saved. And so we're in that period 
where we do struggle with sin, where we do make mistakes. So I don't want anybody to feel condemned. Like if I sin, that means I'm not a Christian. No, what it means is you are a Christian if you recognize that it's sin. Where you live in repentance is where you say that is sin. I'm taking it to the cross and I want to walk in righteousness and purity with the Lord. The benefit that comes out of this is that you get to walk in freedom. Because in the past, you were a slave to sin. The Bible is very clear about this. We couldn't not sin. But now as a believer, you have a choice. And in that choice, there's no condemnation. It's continually going to the cross saying, Jesus, I want to live like you, love like you, be like you, because you've redeemed me to a new purpose. Number two, as we count the cross, number one is the renunciation of sin. Number two is the renunciation of self. In order to follow Christ, we must not only forsake isolated sins, but give up the very principle of self-will, which lies at the root of every act of sin. To follow Christ is to surrender to him the rights over our own lives. It is to abdicate the throne of our heart and obey him as our king. This renunciation of self is vividly described by Jesus in three phrases, and we're going to look at them. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and lose our life. In Matthew 16, he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. When we talk about denying ourselves, this is just a commitment to say no to our own selfishness, to say no to our sin nature, and to say yes to Christ's commands and his specific will for our life for this reason, the reason and the fact that he is the Lord, that he is king, and he has the right to demand of us a particular way of life. The, the, one of the fundamental issues that divides Christians in the modern age from the world is that we hold fast to this belief and commitment that because Jesus is king, his moral imperatives are to be obeyed and followed and are uh, binding whether someone agrees with them or not. Now, we all understand this idea because everybody here, whether you obey it or not, we understand there is a speed limit and it is the law whether you like it or not, right? Right? So when the sign says 55, if a police officer pulls you over and you're going 56 and he says, I'm giving you a ticket because you broke the law, you can argue, you can complain, you can whine, you can cry, you can beg, right? But you are technically over the line. And we recognize that whether we like it or accept it or whatever, that is the law. Because there is a God, because he is holy, because he's given us uh, particular commands, he has the right to say this, not that. Yes, not, you know, yes to this, no to that. And as Christians, we don't, we don't justify ourselves by saying that we always live up to it perfectly, but we do understand that there are lines. You with me? There are laws. And when you become a follower of Jesus and you say, I'm going to deny myself, what you're saying is because I understand that you have a will and I have a will, one of us has to be the boss and I'm calling you the boss. I'm giving you that throne of my heart. I'm saying you, Lord, now are the, the arbiter. You're the judge. You're the one that says, this is how we're going we're gonna to go. And so we have to say no uh, to ourselves. We say no to our lust and our greed and our pride and our self-righteousness. And we say no to our selfishness. And we say no to uh, all of the things that we do that are against God's will. And we say yes to him. And that's something that as a believer, you actually can do. That when you have a new nature, you have the capacity and the ability, though you will fail like I do on a daily basis, you do have the new nature, the capacity to say yes to God and no to yourself. And Jesus says that, that this is the call of a Christian. As you count the cost, understand the call is to deny yourself. And it's crazy because if you want to really see where things are with a person, tell them no. 
the word no opens up a whole new light of where somebody really stands with you, doesn't it? Like with my kids, parenting is basically one long sequences of yeses and nos, right? Yes to some things, no to others, and then how you respond to either of those words is how we deal with you moving forward. And this is exactly how it is with God. Well, God, I would just prefer to have like, you know, 25 sexual partners. No. Well, why do you get to say no? Because that's what I want. That's what I feel. That's what I want to do. No. I have a line. Don't cross it. This is the line. It's bad for you. It'll hurt other people. It'll hurt you. I'm the creator. I know better. Well, God, I'm going to do my own thing. This is the essence of the struggle between God and man, right? Sin has put us in this boat where we go, I'm king. And Jesus says, no, I'm king. And you can't have it both ways. And so as a follower of Jesus, you have to say, Lord, you sit on the throne. But Lord, I feel this. Okay, surrender that to the cross. Submit it to the cross. But Lord, I want this. I want more. No, that's enough. Okay, does this make sense, everybody? And so denying ourselves, it's like such a foreign concept. It's crazy, but I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Denying ourselves is a part of following Jesus. When I was a, a lad, I was probably four or five years old. I struggled with my dad about authority. I struggled with him. I would say, he would say, I'm the boss, Jake. And I would say, no, I'm the boss. And I only hear this story from him, so it could be a total lie. (laughs) Jake, I'm the boss. No, daddy, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. Jake's the boss. And he would say, no, I'm the boss. And we would struggle. And then he finally gave me a title. He said, Jacob, you're the nothing boss. I accepted it feeling as if I had won, you know, against my father. And the reality is, uh, as I've aged, I realized that's basically where I needed to stay as the nothing boss. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is king. His will, his way, his word, not my thoughts, not my direct, self-directed. Even my best ideas fall short of what God wants. Therefore, Jesus is king. Jesus sits on the throne. There is no kingdom without a king. It's interesting in our day and age, people love the benefits of the kingdom of God. They just don't want the no. They just don't want the king. I mean, you think about the benefits of the kingdom of God. Here we sit in a room, black, white, every ethnicity, different generations, different socioeconomic classes, and we're here sitting in peace. You voted for different people. You have very different opinions about vaccines, masks, and health and pandemic and all of that. Uh, Everybody in this room has zero reason to get along except for the fact that the Ducks are the best team. We all know that. Okay, but other than that, we have zero reason to agree except for the fact that we all know we're sinners saved by grace and we are the body of Christ. There is something beautiful about the unity of the church and the world desperately wants that unity, but the unity comes underneath the throne and the authority of a king who says yes and no to particular things. And so the world wants the unity, but doesn't want the king saying no. The world wants the beautiful aspect of the church throughout history that has gone to the, to the sick, to the poor, to the imprisoned, and brought kindness and compassion and brought grace into a graceless world. The world loves the grace that comes from the throne and the, and the people of God. It, it, it loves that aspect and that benefit. It loves the charity that comes out of the heart of a true Christian and follower of Jesus. But when Jesus says, but young, you young ruler, give all that you have to this kingdom, it says, I can't, that's too much. It's, it's, it's not enough. Again, wanting the kingdom, not wanting the king. And Jesus says, you don't get the bennies without acknowledging the throne. You can't receive the Savior without the Lord. And therefore we deny ourselves. Number two, take up the cross. Jesus 
said this and his listeners heard him say, take up every single day the means of your own execution. Bear upon your shoulders this idea that, that you, you want to be, uh, you're dead. You're, you're, you're going to the grave every day. You can say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The, a true Christian is going to every day wake up and say, today is the day I die. Today is the day I lay my life down for the kingdom of God. Today is the day I lay my life down for the gospel. Today is the day I lay my life down for my enemy. Today is the day I lay my life down to serve people. Today is the day I lay my life down to serve my family. Today is the day I die. Why? Because I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but I live my life with, through Christ and by his spirit inside of me. I have a good friend uh, who's uh, uh, been grievously ill uh, since he's a, a teenager, maybe even, a, maybe even before he was a teenager, he has significant kidney issues and he basically almost dies every year and he lives his life. He goes to dialysis many hours a week. I mean, he just lives on death's door. I mean, he's, I think, coded many times. And he got in some hot water. He's a bold preacher, bold prophet. He got into some hot water over some things he said, which were correct, but irritated our culture. And so people were going after him. These people were attacking him. And I called him up. I said, Joel, I'm really sorry to hear that you're going through this. And he said, he has a deep Southern accent. He goes, it's all right. Uh, can't kill a dead man. <laughs> it's like, you are so awesome. You know, just this cool, like, you, you can't, I'm already dead. You can't kill a dead man. It was like, he lives this verse out that if you're already dead, and he like physically is basically dead. He's like a dead man walking. He doesn't have any fear about offending people. He's not purposely trying to say incendiary things, but he speaks truth. And he's living out this idea. And I think about the fact that if you are already dead, and you already know I went down into the waters of baptism, I died with Christ. Now I don't need to fear what people say. I've taken up my cross on a daily basis. I've taken up my cross and I'm willing to die to my selfishness, my sin, because I'm alive in Jesus. And there's some wonderful freedom and potential to do some incredible things for God's kingdom when you live as if you're already dead because you're taking up your cross on a daily basis. Number three, lose our life. When Jesus talks about losing our life, he doesn't mean giving up your identity. Uh, what he means is laying down and losing yourself into Christ's will, but not into his personality. You are who you are. You were made as that artist. You were made as that craftsman. You were made as that businessman or woman. You were made as that preacher or prophet. Whatever God wired you to be, what he wired you to do, the gifts and callings and talents that he's placed in your life, you don't lose that and you don't lose your sense of identity uh, in Christ. If anything, as you die to yourself, he removes the dross and reveals the gold and you become more of who you were intended to be. I want you to think about the God that the Bible speaks of who wove and fashioned you in the womb. He, he knows every hair upon your head. He knows you better than you know yourself. How could giving your life to him reduce your individuality rather than enhance it to be who you were called to be? Because what we understand is that all sin is actually a case of mistaken identity. It's that if we really knew that we were a son or a daughter of the one true king, if we really understood our place in this created order that God gave us authority over this planet and that the brokenness and the fallenness that we see, that we so react against, we're part of that problem and we also live in that problem. But if we took up our real identity as uh, uh, emissaries of the kingdom of God and now that God's love and life is going to flow through us, we would do things differently 
than we are when we live in sin. Sin is a case of mistaken identity. It says I can find hope and fulfillment and life and pleasure in anything other than what I was created for. I can fuel myself with anything other than the Spirit of God. And it's denying who we really are. But when we say, God, I'm going to embrace you and lose my life for your sake, he says you will find it. And what Christians throughout history have discovered is that even if they died a martyr's death, even if they lived in poverty, even if they gave everything they had for the sake of the gospel, that the others would say, man, they lost everything. And they would say, I gained everything because I have Christ. And they could say, like C.S. Lewis said, he that has God and nothing else has more than he or has the same as he that has God. I screw that quote up every single time. <laughs> Help me out, somebody. Where's Rob? Where's my... And everything. He that has God and nothing else is the same as he that has God and everything. In other words, if you have God, if you have his kingdom, if you have life in Christ, you don't need anything else. You have it all. You have connection to the creator, the author of life. Thank you, Rob. You're my go-to. Give Rob a hand. He's my go-to. C.S. Lewis quote. I just get on a roll and I, I, you know, it's like being on a runaway train and you get out and you realize the bridge is out and then it's too late. Sin is a case of mistaken identity. And therefore, when Jesus says, lose your life, he's inviting us back to our original purpose and to discover our real identity. Sans sin, leaving selfishness behind, leaving self-serving actions behind. When we lose our life in him, we find it in him again. And then thirdly, we're talking about renunciation of sin, renunciation of self. Thirdly, there's this call as we count the cost to acknowledge Christ publicly to go public, to come out as a Christian, to come out and be bold about who you are. It's interesting in our day and age, you're celebrated if you come out with any kind of identity. But if somebody says, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, far less likes, far less hearts. You get a few bold Christians that'll feel bold enough to like that. You can come out as anything else that you want and people will celebrate you. You're a hero, you're so brave. But if you come out as a follower of Jesus, you're called a bigot, you're called a fundamentalist, you go to the weirdo box, you believe in the invisible man in the sky, why don't you believe in the spaghetti monster? <laughs> right? Jesus predicted it. He said in Mark chapter 8, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. He said in Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. John Stott says, we are commanded not only to follow Christ privately, but also to acknowledge him publicly. It is not enough to deny ourselves in secret if we deny him in the open. The very fact that Jesus told us not to be ashamed of him shows that he knew we would be tempted to be ashamed. And the fact that he added in this adulterous and sinful generation shows that he knew why. Because when everybody is going one direction and you're going the opposite way, you look like a weirdo. But as your mom told you all those years ago, if your friends all jumped off a bridge, would you too? In my case as a young man, that was literally what happened. I didn't really like live faithfully to who I was as a person. My friends would all go jump off bridges and into lakes, and I hate lakes. I hate them. I never want to swim in a lake again. If you invite me to a lake, no. Easy answer. 
People are like, would you like to go out in inclement weather? No, I want to sit in my easy chair. I want to have a hot cup of coffee. I want multiple screens. I want books. That's all I want. I'm happy. Leave me alone. Don't talk to me. I don't need friends. I just want to sit here by myself with books. That's what I want. And uh, when I was a kid, though, when I was a teenager, I didn't want to, I wanted to fit in. So my friends were like, let's go jump off bridges. Let's go to Applegate Lake. We're going to jump in the water. I'd be like, whoa, yeah. And I would be absolutely, utterly miserable the entire time. And they'd be like, jump, jump. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just sitting on this dirt over here, just hanging out. Let's go. Are you guys ready to go? Should we head back to get to the convenience store and get a Slurpee? Like, ready to go? They're like, no, we're going to be here for a long time. I wanted to fit in. Then as I got older, I realized I hate everything about that. I hate it. I don't like lakes. You can love them. That's great. It's not me hating them doesn't mean you can't love them. But I don't love them. I hate them. And so I spent so much time in the weirdo box because people wanted to do different things than I wanted to do. And it's, it's, it's such an example of what it means to be a Christian that as a Christian, you get put in the weirdo box so often because the world says, we celebrate all of these things. And if you don't celebrate, if you don't stand up and dance when the music plays and the golden idol comes up or whatever culture deems is to be the appropriate thing to celebrate in each moment, and you don't dance, then people go, what a weirdo. You're so judgmental. You're a fundamentalist. You believe in some invisible, made-up thing, and people are like, weirdo, 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 because everybody's jumping off a bridge, and you're the only sane person. And so Jesus says, heads up, be strong, be bold, be courageous, and don't bow when the sinful and adulterous generation tells you to be ashamed of me and my words. If you're going to die on a hill, die on the hill of saying, I'm just going to trust in what Jesus said. Now, if you're dying on a hill because you're being a jerk or you're trying to use the Bible as a weapon or you're trying to politicize the Bible, then you're dying on the wrong hill. So don't hear me say this and go, that means what I should do is go scream in people's faces. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is if somebody's attacking you for standing on God's word or the word of Jesus or, or criticizing you for your Christian faith or Christian values that are from the Bible, not traditional, but from the Bible, then you should proudly die on that hill because you're standing for Christ. You should be a public witness. You don't just acknowledge privately, you acknowledge publicly, I'm with Jesus. My life belongs to him. Jesus anticipated that his church would be a minority movement in the world and it requires courage to side with the few against the many, especially if the few are unpopular and we may not be naturally drawn to them. You know, a lot of times people come to churches and they say, well, I don't really like the people here. Uh, because they're not like me, or I don't fit in, or there's not enough people my age, or where's the, you know, knitting group for 45-year-old people? I mean, like, there's, we always think in these homogeneous sort of things. Well, why aren't there any young people, or why aren't there older people? And we think that way. The reality is that the church is supposed to be radically diverse, like it is, because we're not united based on anything other than the blood of Jesus and our shared partnership in his kingdom. And so, uh, maybe church isn't like the club you would want to be a part of, but it is the club that you need to be a part of because God is using it and doing something and you're part of the remnant that says we're not ashamed of the gospel and we're not ashamed of the fact that we are sinners and Jesus saved us and that is our identity. So be loud and proud about that. Cool? But following Jesus is not just about what, what it costs us, even though I spent all my time talking about that because I lean negative, in case you haven't noticed. I just like to talk about the negative stuff. I just, it's more fun. But there are incentives, there are benefits. You know, being a Christian is so wonderful. All joking aside, there are three things I want to highlight very, very briefly. 
incentives. You know, when you count the cost, counting the cost is what am I going to get for this? I'm paying this price. I'm renouncing sin. I'm renouncing myself and I'm acknowledging Christ, sometimes to my own detriment. What do I get? Number one, we do it for our own sake. You know, as, as you give your life away to Jesus and you take on the cross, you might think it's all hard yards. It's all, it's all rough. It's just going to be the worst. The reality is that living a life with the presence of God on the inside of you is unbelievably awesome. Because you know what? Every time that you would be alone and facing that dark valley, you, you draw down into that well and there's the Lord and he's right there with you in the midst of that. When everyone misunderstands you and your father says, no, I see you, I know what you're about. When you are uh, sick and laying on that bed and, and the Lord comes and comforts you, when you're afflicted and he's there for you, like you do it for your own sake. Following Jesus gives you resurrection life and it starts right now and you begin to, to have a new purpose and a new hope and he begins to take away the, the old and bring in the new and it's a beautiful thing. Number two, it's not just for our own sake, but it's for the sake of others. How many of you would say, Pastor Jake, it's pretty easy to look around at the world around us and say, it's kind of a mess, right? A lot of injustice, a lot of problems, a lot of things we could look at and say, that shouldn't be done that way. This isn't right. People shouldn't treat each other this way. This country shouldn't abuse this one like that. These, this group shouldn't do this to that group. It's pretty easy to look and see the problem. When you are a follower of Christ, now instead of just being able to see the problem, you are now gifted what the, the Bible calls the ministry of reconciliation. Scripture says, how beautiful are those that preach the gospel. The gospel means good news. And now instead of just being somebody who gets to shout bad news, bad news, bad news, everything's bad, you get to be part of a new kingdom that says, we're here with a solution. We get to proclaim the good news. So when you sit down with that mom and she's a young single mom and she says, why did, you know, why did I get abandoned and all this kind of stuff? You get to say, you know what? You might've been abandoned in this life, but let me tell you about Jesus who cares for you and cares for your kids, mama, that you're trying to raise. Let me tell you about Jesus who loves you despite your past. Let me tell you about Jesus, drug addict, who wants to redeem you and restore you and take back what the devil has stolen from you and put you in a new place. Let me give you some good news in the face of some bad news. Every single time that I get an opportunity to share good news, I like it. I like it. When somebody comes to me and says, man, this is the world so crappy and all this stuff, I go, you're right. You know what? I'm so happy that I know the answer that in Christ there is new hope and there is life and there is a new creation. The fact that you have the gospel is such an incredible thing. You are given the ministry of reconciliation and you are now an ambassador of the kingdom of God we follow Christ for the sake of others. Number three, we follow Christ for Christ's sake. I don't mean it like, for Christ's sake. No, I mean it. <laughs> Abraham was called by God to follow him to a new place. And Abraham says in the Bible, one of my favorite lines, he says, Lord, you are my exceedingly great reward. You know, in my marriage with Bethany, there's good days, there's bad days. And it's both directions, right? Sometimes she's off, I'm on, I'm off, she's on. You know, and it goes, sometimes we're both on, that's great. But marriage is this up and down. But over 14 years of marriage, it wasn't the wedding day and it won't be the day that we die. The reward is her. That I get to live life with this beautiful woman and see days and nights go 
raise our kids, and the beauty is in the journey. And we've turned Christianity oftentimes into transactional and, and this thing of like, I get saved, I get to go to heaven when I die. But everything in between is mine. And Jesus says, hold on a second, you're missing something that when you are his follower, that means you're with him. It means you get to be with Jesus and you get to hear his words on a daily basis and he gets to guide you and lead you. As it says in Psalms 23, beside still waters and lay you down in the green pastures and he's with you in the valley of the shadow of death. See, here's the reality that God knows that life on this side of eternity is going to be fraught with terrors and tribulations and troubles and it's gonna have pandemics and it's gonna have bad politics and it's gonna have husky victories. The horrors of life. It's gonna have sickness and it's gonna have broken relationships. And you can do that alone and without hope or you can enjoy a relationship with Jesus who is with you and sticks closer than a, than a brother and leads you and guides you. And he is our exceedingly great reward. And so today as we finish up, we've looked at the cost, we've examined renun renouncing sin, renouncing ourself, acknowledging Christ and that he gives us life for ourselves and for others and we get relationship with him. But now it comes a moment of decision. If you'd bow your head and close your eyes, I just want to make an opportunity. We do this every single week. And maybe you have more questions and you want to seek and you want to study it more. That's okay. But if you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus. I have counted the cost. I've lived my life according to my own terms. And I've, I've, it's not working out for me. I don't have hope. I don't have that eternal life. I don't have that relationship with my creator that you're talking about today. If you would like to make a decision to put your faith in Christ and become his follower, this is a moment to publicly acknowledge, to turn from your sin and say, I'm not living that way any longer. Jesus, give me the grace to follow you on a daily basis. To turn from yourself and say, you're my Lord. And to stand up in an adulterous and sinful generation and say, I serve the King above all kings. If that's you today and you want to put your faith in Jesus, would you just raise your hand so I can see? Thank you. 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 Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Man, that's awesome. Anybody else here today? So many hands. Let's all pray this prayer together. If that's you, you're going to thank you. Let's pray this prayer together. Put our faith in Christ and affirm that we're following Jesus. Dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know that I've not lived up to your standard. But I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed to me at the cross where you paid for my sin and made a way for me to be right with God. I receive you as my Lord and Savior and I receive your Holy Spirit that I may follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.